Welcome to the 120th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode was brought to you by our patron, Luke Good. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Oren Kaplan, and today we have Gareth Emery and Kevin Herrera on the show. Gareth is the star and creator of CVNT5, the show that Matt Enlow directed and told us all about last year on this podcast that's right it's out it's on go90.com and on the go90 app for some time we'll see how much longer i don't know exactly yeah go90 is kind of disbanding and like kind of they're doing some stuff right oath is like their content yeah company we'll we'll see but uh, you know get it while it's hot check out the (laughs) check out the episodes check it out it's really funny it's a fictionalized world of a dj it's mockumentary style um and it's it's awesome i really enjoyed it uh, the parts that I saw. Thanks, man. Uh, yeah, I think uh, Gareth and Kevin were in the trenches with me. So it's a really great perspective on what it is to make eight half hours of television with a lot of people who hadn't done it before. Yeah. Oh, and it's so- worth mentioning that Gareth Emery is this like world famous DJ that, you know, is used to performing for 10,000 people at a time at shows. And he... Even more. Yeah. Yeah. Or more than that. Thousands of people. And he's, you know got approached to do this show and matt helmed it my favorite part as i told matt was when we talked about why they hired matt uh, to direct it because they had a lot of different options and i think it's a great lesson to learn about how to approach an interview about directing a show um it was great to catch up with some old pals and talk about how we made the show together um so stick around for a great in-depth conversation gareth is a real student of everything basically he's a student of the world and he's really great at self-teaching and so we talk about how you go from being very good at one discipline you spent your whole life working on music how do you transfer all of that audience and skill and experience into something brand new which is making tv uh, and I think he did a great job. Yeah, I think this is good for uh, a lot of our listeners that we've gotten feedback from that are a little starting to get into film a little later in life and wondering if it's like too late. And I think he's an example of like, you know, he's always been an artist, but he just dove into this medium recently and is loving it and can't wait to do his next thing. So I think it's never too late. I don't think so either. Yeah, and Gareth would agree. So I can't wait to talk with those guys a little bit more. But before we do that, Oren, I have been dying to know, what have you been working on lately? Uh, Well, Matt, I have been, I don't know, in this weird limbo as we often find ourselves. I'm on hold for about seven different projects. One of them is that e-pilot that I've talked about on the podcast. And so many people have emailed me about it that have heard me talk about on the show. And I unfortunately have to respond to all of them and say like, yeah, it's been delayed. We're recasting. And, you know, I guess that is kind of the repercussions of having a podcast where you talk about what you do every week (laughs) because people ask you about it, uh, which totally makes sense. So I'm on that. I pitched on this, you know, big uh, commercial job last week and they just changed all the scripts as is not unusual at all (laughs) you spend a week figuring out how you would shoot these things and come up with 10 different funny ways to say a certain line of dialogue or a camera angle and then right when you finish everything they're like ah the client is deciding to change everything but okay so the other thing i've kind of been thinking a lot about lately kind of something we talked about our friends at making movies is hard timothy and alric just had an episode where timothy was kind of talking about you know, getting to an age where 
he's not sure if he wants to kind of continue with the hustle of like fighting to get money, fighting to write scripts, fighting to get jobs. I personally think he's like a very talented commercial director and that he will probably get more jobs. So who knows if he will stop directing or not. But, you know, whenever you hear about friends, we have another friend, Ian Pfaff. Do you know him? He just left L.A. He moved back to the Midwest. And he's like one of the most creative, artistic people I've ever met. I only know him from his reel as featured on Jordan Brady's podcast. Podcast. Respect the process. Yeah. Um, He's amazing. So he, he went home? Yeah, you know, he has a couple kids, he has a wife, and I think they wanted to be closer to their family to help raise the kids. And I mean, this is like, this guy builds all his own props, does stop motion, writes his own music, mm-hmm. like makes amazing stuff. You know, he's directed all the stuff for Funny or Die and yeah, TV shows and movies and everything. Talented. Yeah, And he's like, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I, I'm nowhere near wanting to be done, but... I sometimes I know I mean we have a freaking podcast called just shoot it I know the best way to get work is to go make work and sometimes I'm like ah, I've been doing this for a long time like mm-hmm. do I really want to just like take a camera and go out and like rally everyone to go make this short film I mean you just made a short film yeah you man. know what it's like I don't know I guess I love this and I've been I, I guess just the thing I've been thinking about is how the longer your career is, you know, I don't know, I've been in LA for like 13 years already. The longer you do this, the more work it is to mm-hmm. get yourself excited about projects and to not be jaded and all that stuff and not think about, oh, am I going to waste my like two years on a documentary about like power walking or whatever? Um, you know, like, so I you, would watch that movie for the record. Yeah, I know. Everyone would watch it until they start working on it. And then they're like, yeah, I don't want to spend so much time on this. So, yeah, I, I don't know. It's uh, d- like, I guess fatigue is just something that I've been thinking a lot about lately. And I, I watch these YouTube stars uh, that just like are giant and they fizzle out and they're like, dude, I can't. I can't do this anymore. And, you know, like there are a few YouTubers like Shane Dawson that are like still doing it like 15 years in. But it's hard to think like when I'm going to be in my 50s and 60s, am I still going to be making YouTube videos or funny or die videos or am I going to put together a crew and make a funny short with my friends on the weekends? Right. Like, so do you ever think about like the long game? Like, where does this all go to? Yeah, I think about it all the time. Um (laughs) As we've talked about, um, I'm obsessed with mortality, and my short is called The Gray One. It's about a um, couple that uh, comedically discovers one of them has a gray pubic hair, and that's a existential spiral into a meditation and conversation about um, what it is we're doing. Right. It's explicitly about that, about how life is a ticking clock. Right, so you're um, trying to channel with, with pube jokes. Right, you're channeling your anxiety into creative, a creative outlet. And so, and look, you know, filmmaking. I don't know if anyone's heard or not, but it is pretty hard. Um, and the highs are high, the lows are low. We talk, that's what the show is about. You know, we're both married to actors, right? So, like, we're we're all in this struggle together. The question that I always pose, and I've always had a consistent answer, is: Could I be happy? doing anything else and if the answer is no then there you go
Um, and is the answer no? Yeah. So if I offered you a job, you're going to make 200 grand a year overseeing the creative wing of like a production company. Um, basically, like kind of go back onto the corporate side of filmmaking. Sure. So, so in, in the spectrum of temptation, right, um, the, the things I will always fantasy, fantasize about are like getting that creative director job, getting that advertising job, doing that development thing again with a cushy salary or moving to a smaller market where competition is less fierce and buying a house and like raising kids and um, making a good living but not being in the big leagues, right? As I see them, not to be condescending, but right. to, to, to be decide in a less to, competitive market. to decide no longer to be actively pursuing a Hollywood, capital H Hollywood career. Um, and we think about that and that's not, I'm not sure that the answer will always be consistent. You know, like a house in Austin sounds pretty great and I don't begrudge anyone who decides to do that. I know some people who have done it and like, love it. Um, but right now, yeah, the answer is no. I did that. And you know, that even when I have a gig that kind of gets close to that or when I'm working closely with someone who has made that decision, I know it's not for me. Um, what about you? Have you thought about that that development job? No, I've, but I have thought about like calling my friends that run production companies and saying, hey, what's, I love directing. I still want to direct, but I also want to help like build the team. And I don't mind, I, I personally, you know, there's some directors, there are the auteurs that like want to have control of the script and the direction and the edit and everything. And I do think I am a director that loves collaborating. I like hate being by myself. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't mind working with other directors or overseeing projects. Being or, an in-house creative yeah. in some capacity. Yeah. Um, I love editing, you know, so I don't mind like taking people's stuff that's not quite working and figuring out how to make it work, you know, uh, taking scripts that are bad and like kind of brainstorming how to make them good. You know, like that, those parts of directing that are fun for us, I wouldn't mind doing that on projects where other people are directing. Uh, though I love directing too, but part of what I love about directing is you get to touch all the parts of the filmmaking <laughs> process. So yeah, I mean, I, I do think about that. Sure. And I do think about also like teaming up with other directors. Like you see like the Daniels or you see these directing duos and you're like, man, it must be so fun to have someone right. pushing you when you're down, you know, and you can yeah. push them when they're down. I suspect those guys work longer hours than anyone else we know. It, which is also true for all of our friends who own their own company. You right, know, right. I think but when, what about like the John and Val, you know, that directed like Little Miss Sunshine and right. um, there's like other directing and they, they do a ton of commercials. You know, I think that's, and that is part of, I think, why we're married to actors um, is because we get to support each other. You know, Kara has a big audition and yeah. I'll like try to hype her up. I have a big meeting and she'll try to hype me up. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I think know. the the seduction of like the having your own company thing, that's real. You know, to build something, you know, to have a space to do creative things. But I don't necessarily see that as quitting directing. 
or giving up in any way. I think it's just that you're kind of dividing your time a little bit differently. Right, but it is going from the full-time director to yeah. directing as one of the things you can do as a creative. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, you still that hustle is still there and a big part of it. Right. I don't know. Well, I will say this. Uh, I ran into a buddy of mine who sold um, a big spec. Uh, it's my friend Steve Desmond. We went to school together. Um, and we've kept in touch, and he's had, like, uh, you know, success. Like, he's a working screenwriter, but this was a big sale. He and his writing partner optioned, um, you, I saw it in Deadline. They sold, like, a Back to the Future-esque kind of, like, adventure, sci-fi adventure. I was like, oh, fuck, that is awesome. Um, and then I ran into him a week ago, and I was like, oh, my God, Steve, you like, you had this big sale. What's going on? How's it feeling? And he uh, was like, you know, we had a, a nice long conversation about it. He did the exact story that we've always heard. He practiced writing a ton. He, this was his 17th screenplay. <laughs> wow. He looked at the world and said, you know what? I think that, that I need to write something that's going to uplift people and give them fun and give them hope. So I'm going to take what's happening in the world. I'm going to filter it through myself. I'm going to use my voice to do what I do best and make something better. Uh, he read a great short story from like the 60s that had won a Hugo. It's eight pages long. Option, re reached out to the author, optioned it, then wrote this, this. He's a working screenwriter. He wrote it on spec and then got the bidding war. So that's the Cinderella story of what it is to be a screenwriter. And I'm telling you what, I've, I've known this dude for a decade and a half, and that's what it took. Right. 17 and scripts under his belt. 17 scripts under his belt. And just the grind all the time. Um, and he did it. Like, we're going to love that movie. It's at Warner right now. Who knows? Steven Spielberg could direct it. Like, that's, that's in the cards. That's on the, the deck. Um, so my, I guess my point is, is that, like, if you keep at it, like those sorts of things happen, you know, maybe not for everybody, but like opportunities do come through for people and there's work to be had. And if you go for it, you'll get it. I believe that. Yeah. I think when it comes to writing, that's like really the great equalizer of everything because you can be 20 or 60 man, woman, any ethnicity, any sexual orientation, any gender, and if people read your script and like it, then yep. you can go somewhere. Um, I think directing is a little a little different. I think like who you are as a person, even if people claim they aren't judging you on that at all or they're only looking at your real, your real or whatever, um, we even heard in this conversation today, it's like about, you know, whether you think you you kind of get along together and you yeah, want to hang out. it's a collaborative meeting. But, you know, I think also there is the version, that's one version, and that's how we were getting a lot of our work. But I think the flip side is, like, there are a lot of people who we were joking, like, oh, they couldn't hire Vince Gilligan. But the reason we talk about Vince Gilligan is because of his work and how awesome the work that he has done. Right, his writing. His writing. Well, but but... What I'm saying, he's a showrunner though, so it's a different. It's yes, it's his writing, but also it's all of the directors that he's hired and like the overall. He's the auteur of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, right? Yeah. Also, after writing on The Sopranos and sure, and X Files and yeah, blah blah. Yeah. blah. Um, his experience 
made him the sort of person that you want to hire. And so, yeah, that works for writers, that works for directors, but like being the person with the voice and the point of view and the expertise to execute, people recognize that and want, that's the point of working your way up is like, oh man, did you see that crazy Burning Man thing that Oren did? We need him to do our thing. Like that's right. the whole goal. That's the whole grind. You know, that's why you do the short on the weekends, not just because it's fun. Right. Though hopefully it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. Well, good. I hope uh, I hope this wasn't too too deep of a catch up. But uh, thanks for chatting. Yeah, I mean, look, everybody questions, right? If you, it would be dumb not to think hard about it. And I think that there's relief and solace in admitting to yourself what it is you want. For sure. Before we get into our chat with Gareth, uh, just a reminder that we do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash justshootitpod. It's a way that if you uh, are a fan of the show and enjoy it and feel like you're getting anything out of it and feel like supporting us, helping us pay our editors, helping us plan events, which we need, desperately need to do ASAP. It's coming. Um, yeah, check it out. I mean, now our Patreon is picking up some steam, so I do think... We hit $50. We yeah. are at 50 That's pretty great. Yeah. If you feel like contributing a dollar a month to uh, help us, uh, you know, make this podcast as good as we can make it, we'd appreciate it. If not, the podcast will always be free, so... Uh, keep on listening. Thanks, everyone. And you get your name at the top of the show. That's that's worth a buck. That's pretty fun. With that, let's talk to Gareth Emery and Kevin Herrera. Hey there, Gareth Emery, um, DJ, record producer, and um, fairly poor amateurist actor uh, once in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and star of CVNT5. Creator <laughs> and star know. of CVNT5. <laughs> Co-creator. Um, CVNT5 is a fictitious group um i guess kind of um to demonstrate the worst of electronic music electronic music is my sort of day job and um we kind of put together this um fictitious act and made some music videos and, and sort of short webisodes um to kind of show the worst of our world i guess that's where it kind of came from and we ended up making a big tv show out of it uh with kevin herrera kevin. hello yeah co-showrunner uh co-executive producer of we are cvnt5 and um one third of the machine. True, correct. Oh, uh, which is a management, advertising, and production firm focused on the creation of consumer-valued content. Oh, oh wow! That. Well, it just uh, <laughs> sound. Is that the first time you said that, Kevin? And maybe, yeah, right <laughs> off the top. Yeah, yeah. Wow, <laughs> you should write that down. <laughs> so, Gareth, so your day job as a DJ, you don't use uh, like CVNT five as a name at all. No, it's just it's just Gareth Emery. Well, um, you, you guys will do shows every once in a while, I suppose, we, right? We, we've done it once. Oh, just once? Oh, just, I didn't realize that. Just once. The funny thing was the other guy who's part of CVNT5 on the music level didn't even show up. He missed his flight. So <laughs> we just put somebody else in the outfit with the gold jacket and the sunglasses and the wig and nobody noticed. So yeah, yeah. Um, that's the only time we've ever performed. Uh, CVNT5. I suppose that's really method acting. That's in character right yeah, there, right? Yeah, exactly. It's surprisingly fun, though. Yeah, Is that yeah. a popular, like, a common thing in the DJ world? Like, Dead Mao and, like, Daft Punk, like, different people are, are uh, different DJs are wearing the mask? Yeah, helmets equal money, as we sure. say in one episode in the show. That's right. <laughs> so how did you, you had, like, some sort of social following for CVNT5 before the show. Yeah, so we um, invented CVNT5 as a promo for my uh, 2016 album. We just wanted to do something really stupid and, and really out there. 
And um, the world of dance music is a very serious one. Everybody takes themselves unbelievably seriously. They're terrified of any sort of um, controversy. So we came up with this stupid act called CVNT5, which you write it out, you'll figure out sort of, um, you know, pertains to be another word, um, which I will not say. And um, it was kind of a joke at all these other acts that would put a letter in, a number in the name instead of a letter. So we made a music video out of it. We had a great director do the music video, a guy called uh, Tony Ascender. Sure, yes. friend of the show. Shout Been out Tony. Been on the podcast a bunch of times. Yeah, we were lucky to get him. Um, I'd seen his little dicky music videos and sure. kind of uh, pitched him the concept. And it very nearly didn't happen because we were waiting on a Dan Bilzerian cameo, um, <laughs> which was a thing in 2016. <laughs> And uh, we didn't get Dan and we nearly didn't do it. Anyway, we did the music video. It went great. Every blog in dance music covered it. The reaction was kind of half, oh my God, you're, you're laughing at everybody in the world of dance music. And, you know, the rest of the people absolutely loved it. And from that music video, somebody saw it over at uh, Complex, who then got in touch with us via WME, who are my music agents, and said, hey, we saw this funny music video you've made do you want to make that in so we love the characters we love the world do you want to make it into something a bit more long form and um that's kind of where the the seeds for we are cbnt5 came from and remind me you guys like rented some billboards and you kind of you went all out right well yeah so the cool thing was we launched cbnt5 when i was doing my album so we had a great album budget Mm-hmm. to um to play with and normally we do pretty boring things with it like facebook ad campaigns and i was like this was fun right so we could spend all this money on really cool things so we did a billboard on sunset boulevard for cvnt5 just to see how long it would remain up <laughs> before people worked out what it was saying and um it was like up for a month and nobody figured it out so, so, so that was kind of cool um but we also planned it really well and we made sure when we released this music video, the music video had a lot of social media stuff and you'd see their Twitter accounts going up and their Facebook accounts. So we'd made sure all those accounts really existed. So when you saw the music video, if you wanted to go and dig in mm-hmm. to the lives of these characters, it was already there. Mm-hmm. And um, they got a lot of followers and a pretty engaged fan base um, fairly quickly because of that. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I did is I watched that video and I started digging in. And that's why I was like, oh, wait, this is like a whole thing, CVNT5 separate from the show. It's like exists, yeah, way beyond that. Exactly. Really cool. the, the premise was essentially, can you become the biggest DJs in the world with no talent whatsoever? <laughs> and the video is essentially a fight. The original video is a five minute sort of um, tutorial of how you would do that. And also, I mean, the, in general, you guys like insult your audience and call them peasants and... <laughs> Right, like we weren't re- really throwing shade at anybody, but there's a lot of fakery and there's a lot of acts that <clears throat> you know it, you'd sort of see on their social media. Oh, I love my fans. I'm so humbled. I'm so blessed. But then backstage, it's like get those people away from me. I'm not going through that door. There's fans there, and seeing that stuff from my experience, kind of um, you know backstage and seeing what went on behind mm-hmm. the curtain, I was like, this. We've just got to turn this into something. Um, there's just too many amazing characters here. So it was kind of a mix of stuff like that and the worst of my own personality <laughs> that became the the sort of template for, for Brandon, who's the eventual protagonist in the show. Right. Reluctant protagonist. Perhaps. Reluctant, yeah. <laughs> right. And um, sorry, I'm just curious. You feel free to tell me you can't tell me. But how much does a billboard on Sunset Boulevard cost? 
Surprisingly cheap. I, th- I mean, just FYI, we didn't have the best one. So many people that work in the industry live around there and they want to come out of their street and see their own billboard. But right, yeah. yeah, we went to look at them and um, we were told, oh, this is the Rolls Royce of Sunset Boulevard billboards. And I was like, yeah, cool. But like, Wait, who what? is this, like an, a billboard well, this, agent of sorts? Yeah, exactly. And then this was the one by the Chateau Marmont. And I was like, cool, but what is the, like, the Toyota Corolla of Sunset Boulevard billboards? <laughs> the 99 yeah. Corolla. <laughs> so they, they got us the Corolla, like it was it was on top of one of the hotels. Like you had to be driving in a certain direction to see it. I think it was about 20 grand for a month, which I thought was was pretty decent. Sure. Yeah, yeah. which hotel? Um, the, little, the Grafton, I think, from memory. Okay, it's on the um, strip over there? It, yeah, on the just at the start of the Sunset Strip, yeah. Which was cool, though, because, again, from a vanity perspective, I live around there. Right. So for that month, driving out driving out of my house, I was like, yeah. Could, could you see it from your backyard? No. <laughs> and, and the worst thing was when a somewhat similar show called What Did Diplo Do launched, sure. they got a billboard, which I could see from my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> so... Man, that's a hard that's a hard thing to replicate for our listeners to just get a call from Complex Magazine saying we love your idea. Let's well, make a show out of it. There are some learnable things though. The lesson and and kind of the the big takeaway that uh, working with you, Gareth, really reminded me of is like uh, it's all about initiative and then like self teaching, right? So no one, you didn't go to school to learn how to buy media on Sunset Boulevard, right? No, you figured and- out how to do it, right? In the same way that like getting a music video and like getting it viral and like promoting it properly and then pitching the show, all of those things were things that you were learning along the way, basically. Exactly. And also just realizing you don't need permission to, to do something if you know that it's the way you want to do it. I mean, I wrote the treatment for the music video. I'd never written a music video treatment in my life. And um, the first few people I showed it to said, yeah, that's cool. But when you get in a director, they'll write it properly. And I was like, no, that's that's how I want it to be. Mm-hmm. And um, Tony, fortunately, was like, yeah, it's cool. It, 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 it's going to work. Let's so do it. Having zero knowledge of how these things should be done. And that went right through to when we started writing the show. The first demo episodes I wrote were done in Word. I didn't even have Final Draft. Mm-hmm. and But jokes from those episodes ended up in the show. And it didn't matter what tools I was using or the fact I frankly had no idea what I was doing. The creative content was good and, and, and therefore it worked. So I, I think it's easy to think that you need all the elements lined up. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you, it's almost like you need permission to have all the right stuff. You've got to have the right software. You've got to have the right cameras or whatever to go and do this stuff. And, and, and frankly, you don't. I mean, we had money to do that video well, but we could have shot it on, on iPhones with the same content, and it probably would have had a pretty similar result. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's easy to look, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And it's easy to be like, oh, well, of course you got a complex show because your video went viral and like you created these awesome characters and all this stuff. But at the time, those were all kind of like big out there, weird risks. Like literally in Los Angeles, if you look at every other EDM billboard, it is a white dude in a white fucking t-shirt. Next He's to performing a in Vegas. He's performing in Vegas. Like there's 30 billboards like that all over town, right next to your CPNT five. Oh, we we couldn't even get anybody to feature in the music video. So when Dan Bilzerian dropped out, and I wanted to have an interview with an actual artist talking about CVNT five, 
and nobody would do it. And we literally tried everybody. Because they took themselves too seriously. Not so much themselves too seriously, but they were scared of the reaction. And they would think we're laughing at certain people and they don't want to get on the wrong side of them in case they kick them off a festival. Because we were laughing at some pretty big acts. And um, people would come back and go, oh, the video is so funny. I love it. And I was like, cool. So do you want to do the interview at the end of the video? Oh man, it's a little, it's a, it's a little bit risque. And we were lucky that in the end, Armin van Buren, who's been the four times number one DJ in the world, who really has nothing to prove, kind of saw it and was like, "Yeah, I'll do it." And yeah. kind of thought, "Does he know what he's getting himself in for?" So we got him in and interviewed him before he changed his mind. And without that, none of it probably would have happened. It really was kind of the, the, mm. the cherry on the cake that, that that set the thing off. Does Complex say we want? 10 episodes that are 10 minutes each or how does that how does that work when complex calls you so at first it was like we'd love to do something with this and that was about as far as it went so then we got introduced to a digital agent at wme because obviously my music agents were not in in that part of the business and um they said complex want to see some ideas so i wrote the the very professional microsoft word um sort of uh, treatments so you wrote a treatment or you wrote a screenplay it, it, it was about an eight page screenplay gotcha so, t- um, maybe t- a, a scriptment a scriptment yeah, yeah. In, in, was there a dialogue in it yeah there was dialogue and there were there were jokes in there that made it virtually uncut to the show um it was in times new roman so it was clear to anybody reading it that this was not the work of a seasoned writer yes um, so, so, only helvetica and just fyi for me i'm not generally like that it was very creatively freeing for me to kind of go i don't know what how this is supposed to be done and i don't care now in music i know how everything is right. supposed to be done i i know what it's like done how it's done by the book and i've got the experience i know which, what mm-hmm. equipment to use how the processes work um and in some ways that's a little bit constraining and having seen people come into the music business with zero knowledge Mm -hmm. and zero respect for conventions and how the rest of us claim we should do things and just make something amazing with that freedom i was like i'm gonna be like that guy in the world of tv Mm -hmm. and i almost prided myself on being a bit of a luddite and not really knowing too much other than the creative vision that I kind of wanted to get out there. And, um, and and that worked out kind of well. And I think the other thing that maybe you're not giving yourself enough credit for is that you're a, a great student. So like once you decided, oh, okay, it's time to make a TV show, I feel like we, we had a lot of conversations about how you dove in and really immersed yourself in uh, deciding to learn all of the you know quote unquote right things to do basically as fast as you could oh yeah i sort of went send myself on a a, a kind of um screenwriting crash course so i read a bunch of books obviously obviously the most basic like save the cat that everybody reads which i didn't take too much to heart but you know great place to start but i think the most important thing i did was try to reverse engineer just a bunch of my favorite shows stuff i knew really well um, by just getting the scripts and, and watching the show with script in hand and mm-hmm. trying to figure out, like, you know, what they started with, where the edits happened. And um, that was probably the most useful experience I, I had. And were you pulling those scripts from WME or just the internet or like? Um, some were from WME, but, you know, it was generally like pretty well known stuff. So mm-hmm. it was off. off most of it I could find. find like the, the Office type of shows? Or? Uh, the Office is hard script to find. I couldn't find that in, in Korea. Um, I did Breaking Bad because I knew that show particularly well and it was easy to find the script. Um, I did a load of movies. Our was... show has a lot in common with Breaking Bad. Too, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> <laughs> Again, though, I think for me, anything too similar, I probably would have... It would have been hard. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe I would have started to plagiarize it. For, I, I wanted to learn the format. 
and I wanted to learn how to lay things out and mm-hmm. how much, you know, text to use when describing a scene. And there were certain rules I had to learn, right? You don't describe anything that you can't see. The thoughts that are going on in somebody's head right. don't need to be on paper. That stuff was useful to learn. Um, however, I didn't necessarily need to know how it was done in the office because I, I probably would have started to copy it. So, but you know, I did a lot of films as well. And um, oh, there was one that was really interesting because I, I read the book and then I read the screenplay adaption and then I watched the film and it was, the film was, was, was crap. It was an Angelie Jolie directed film about a war hero. What was it called? Oh, yeah. Unbroken? Um, unbroken. Yeah, yeah. But it was a really interesting process. Begin with the book and then see how it became a script and then watch the, watch the film. But I did that pretty intently for about four to five months. And after that, I was writing reasonably tight scripts. And I was fortunate that Gez, who's one of our co-writers, who is a trade and author, he's uh, actually, he was a number five in the New York Times bestseller list a couple of weeks ago. Um, Geraint Jones is, is his name. And he's a fantastic writer of all sorts. And he taught me a lot of stuff as well. Oh, wow. And so this was after you had been hired or was this still while you're trying to sell no, the show? No, we, we got hired off the um, Times New Roman treatment and they were like, right, we want eight 22-minute episodes. And we were like, whoa, <laughs> that is a lot. Wait, so let us know. To me, this is really interesting. Like, what do you inclu- include in that treatment? Like, what do you have a logline or characters there was or... no log line there was no character descriptions i wrote all that later i did like a bi- i wrote like a bible for the show later because i felt like we needed it but no that first treatment was literally brandon base walks into a club and it started there and it wasn't even a coherent episode it was more like six or seven scenes of about a page or two each that didn't really connect but just showed the sort of jokes and the sort of humor we were, we were going to have so did you know where the show ends or what the arcs are no, or anything like that? No, I no idea. Worked it all out after the show was commissioned. So it was like a tone piece. Did you include any images or references or anything? No, absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting. Do you think, uh, did you have an in-person pitch afterwards? No, it, lit- it literally just came from that. I will say, though, I think they had pretty much made up their mind from the, um, from the video. And the, and the reason why I put together a bible later on was because i felt i'd be pitching other things in the future and i knew they wouldn't be that straightforward i wanted to get a feeling of you know i've read other show bibles like Mm -hmm. the battlestar galactica bible absolutely fantastic Mm -hmm. that was really inspirational um and the great thing about doing the bible after the show had already sold i didn't care and this bible was so fun just the character bios i wrote was the bios i wrote for like our crew you know alex who um was played james in the show um really good friend of mine something of a whipping boy um both in the show (laughs) and on on set so you know i put him i put his bio last and i was like last and least we have alex (laughs) and um i just put stupid things in there that you'd you'd never normally put in a bible and if, if i have to pitch a show again the not caring approach is probably the one I'll take to stand out. So let's let's go back a little bit because I feel like our listeners are going to be like, "Oh my god, how, like how did he do it?" There's got to be a thing. Do you really think it was just the fact that like you're great in the room, you have an audience, and this concept kind of speaks for itself, or like if you could pinpoint the moment where you're like, "Oh, I think I actually sold this show," can you do you have a guess as to where that was? <sighs> I think with this one, it almost definitely came from the original video. I yeah. think the original video, that was when the worlds were created. And by the way, that video was an incredible amount of work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even we had, though we had Tony, who was a wonderful director, I was 
super involved every step of the way. Um, as you probably remember from when we were working on the edit, which sure. is all over emails, yeah. I'm very, very particular about stuff. I've yeah. usually got a version in my head of how I want it to be. So hundreds and hundreds of emails getting the video right, even when we were showing things on people's phones, bits of digital content, I'd work with the designer to make sure everything looked absolutely legit. Like no stone was was, was left unturned. And mm-hmm. I think the work that went into that first video was ultimately the what showed it. Mm-hmm. And then the actual treatment I wrote was just showed them sure. there was some more. It, right. it, it, it wasn't just a fluke. Right. But I, th- I think having an audience is was also important. And... I think, frankly, if your content is good, it's not that difficult to build an audience mm-hmm. um, as long as the content is good. Wait, but I mean, you are also Gareth Emery, yeah. a DJ that's known and in the scene and has an audience and a fan base. Like, do you think, how much of that do you think came into play with Complex? It, um, it definitely was a big part of it. But I do think if somebody that wasn't me had invented these characters, would they have sold the show off one video? No they wouldn't have had the audience could they have sold the show after two years of youtube videos and instagram skits absolutely there's just going to be a little bit of a longer lead up Mm -hmm. so i've already had 15 years of building an audience in music so i was fortunate that the network assumed that enough of that audience would follow me to that new project if you're starting from a completely standing start it's going to be a longer build up but it's still just as achievable if what you're doing is, is, is good. Well, and I think also, like, obviously the audience that you have as a musician will transfer to people who love, they're the people who will love the show first, basically. Yeah. So, like, there's a very easy flow of traffic for them, and that is a thing that people care about. And obviously, like, there's so much content out there, like, figuring out anything that a network can do to, like, get a leg up over the competition is going to be... Um, crucial so like it's not a coincidence that this is the thing that popped for them and that they were like oh of course we want to do this well let me ask you just to get into the nitty-gritty here is your audience your music audience tuning into the show like do they want to see you doing like a comedy a narrative comedy show i would say they do um i think firstly we're only distributed in america right now and we have a bit of a big worldwide audience so a lot of those guys are really unhappy that they can't see it but i think a good percentage of the american fan base are tuning into it <laughs> not as much as if we'd been on netflix rather than go 90.com <laughs> um but that's maybe another lesson to uh take under consideration but no i think a lot of them have, have been tuning in for it and, and most of them have liked it and you know, I think from the... Have you gotten any negative feedback? The only negative feedback was that we changed um, out uh, Ashley's sure. character for yeah. uh, for Paul. Um, the, the character we had in the original music video is not the one that plays sort of my... I, I don't want to use the word sidekick because that... Sure, your best mate. My best mate. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But other than, other than that, no, the responses have been, have been really good. So how long did you guys have to rate the show? Let me think. We uh, the show we were offered the deal in July, and we didn't start shooting until May. And we wrote solidly for nine months. Mm-hmm. Um, January and February 2017, I did nothing else other than get up at five in the morning, and because that was the time when the kids weren't awake, the house was quiet, sure, and yeah. and and write. And um, I had a lot to learn as well. Right, if I was doing it again it probably wouldn't be such hard work. But obviously our first scripts were very, very messy. And um, 
you know, there, there was a point where the production company kind of wanted to take over the process and sort of write the show for us. And for me, that wouldn't have led to it being the sort of show that I wanted to make. So there was a period of us pushing back and saying, hey, no, we want to do this our way. Kind of we create the characters, we create the, wor- the world they live in. Like, yeah, we're rough around the edges, but we're going to get this. And, and eventually we, we kind of figured it out. And who is we that you're referencing? So the four writers that did it in the end um, was uh, sort of me and um, and Geraint uh, Jones, um, who I mentioned earlier. Then uh, my sister Roxanne, who was a co-creator, and um, Alex Madden, who plays uh, James, the, the the manager in the show. And then when we, once we started getting towards um, sort of pre-production, then Kevin brought in um, Alicia um, Yaffe, who was a fantastic writer, really really helped helped us punch things up, and also work out what to cut because we were told a page a minute but our original scripts were like 35 pages long <laughs> and um t- to me I, I had to really see it that, that it was a page a minute before believing it sure uh, now i do and um <laughs> i mean there are like wasn't mad about you like i mean two pages a minute Gil- depends gilmore, gilmore girls, girls is the favorite yeah. the famous example where if you look at a gilmore girl script it's like so much longer like 70 and you're pages like, oh my god there's no way and they're like no no we cram it all in but yeah and i think also the realities of once you're in pre-production and you're like oh i see like you know i wrote 16 ferraris in the front of this house and uh maybe it's now a nightclub instead <laughs> you know things like that kind of shift and grow as we yeah and, and i think having like knowing what i know now i'd put less stuff in future scripts that would be impossible knowing the sort of constraints and it, it is kind of mad i remember we were shooting a music video and i turned up and there was a lamborghini hurricane on set and i was like why is there a lamborghini here um i said that must have been expensive to rent and uh the uh props the guy that handled it, the stage designer said well, it was in the script. And I was like, <laughs> really? And he shows me the script. And all of a sudden I get this flashback of writing the description of that scene. And it was late at night. I was polishing it off. I was sat on my sofa, just tapping out. Brandon walks into the music video studio. There are girls with AK-47s. And I sort of stopped. And I, go, and I was like, hmm, and a Lamborghini. And those three <laughs> words was thousand, thousand dollar rental, which... And like so many conversations, like so many. But it looked really cool. It looked great. Yeah. And well, and to your credit, I think like we started scaling back on some of the cars, cars in particular. Yeah, exactly. Boy, I mean, a Lamborghini, even if I just like see one parked at like the Americana or something, I'm like, wow. And we we put in, we put in favors. (laughs) I mean, there was one point we needed two super sports cars, but we'd blown the car budget. So my buddy, Evan Paul, who has a amazing car dealership in Orange County, um, I don't think we plugged him in the show, so I'm going to plug him yeah, here. There you go. Sent over a Lamborghini and a McLaren. Just literally whacked them on a truck and they arrived. We unloaded them. We shot them and um, made it look legit. Yeah. That's not the car that your one of your extras crashed, is no. it? <laughs> no. No, it is not. We watched those two cars like hawks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so funny not to go on a huge tangent, but the sport car uh, angle, it is an extra level of anxiety because like, you can't drive them like normal. You know, it's not like, oh, you know, we've got a regular old SUV or whatever. Because they're yeah, all supercars. to a PA. It's a jet engine. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, uh, and they're super low. And so you really have to, like, pick your shots and figure out exactly where they need to land 
well in advance in a way that like shooting with a normal car you don't have to think about so it was a funny learning experience for me we put somebody on those cars and their only job was to protect the cars because yeah. initially the cars are there on the drive and it's like people walking past holding lights and stuff sure. and like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, you guys that's half our budget <laughs> like like that's literally the whole show is right there exactly what yeah. are some so aside from the cars what are some other impossible things that you wrote in uh, that you a, would change a trip to england <laughs> we we set episode eight in england and i it took a long time for me to be convinced that it wasn't realistic to go and shoot in england and i was like yeah we'll just do a skeleton crew it'll be fine just and then even after that was shot down i was still going yeah but just b-roll we can just like send somebody to get b-roll i mean and... i kind of was with you on that for like too long i should know better <laughs> i was like let's go. i think in the picture i was like yeah yeah we could go to england cool uh, I think I also did not understand um, what, you know, some good set design could do. I didn't believe we could convincingly set an episode in England and shoot it in Southern California. And in the end, I think we did. And, you know, those sets were hard work and it probably was where I was the biggest pain to people because obviously I knew how things should look. Mm -hmm. Like I would be there literally designing road signs with people to make sure Sure. like everything was bang on. I I downloaded the fonts for British road signs and sent them over. And then we chose some very careful stock footage because we didn't have the right right B-roll. But, you know, we... We just about made it work, and um, and so, so that was definitely over budget. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, also honestly, like it's kind of nice to have that resource. You know, I think the the hardest part actually there was um, getting British cars was really hard because you like the license plates. Or? No, 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 no. They're on their drivers. Uh, their oh right, their wheel right, is on the right, other right. side of the car as well. So like you have to you have to close down the Dude, road to easy. drive on the other side flop the shots man yeah unless there's a single sh- like sign in the road or like locations are specific flop at all the sign. yeah <laughs> yeah i mean kidding. we talked about it a lot and that's not a bad plan but also like i'm just kidding you can't do that for every single shot unfortunately but yeah we thought about it where'd you the get them from a car rental place like a specialty shop yeah we got like a real beater like the car that his character drives is like a piece of shit yeah it looked it looked really british though it looks great in the show yeah that's awesome so uh, and Kevin, feel free to chime in on this. I, so I've seen the first couple episodes and there's like a, some really great crowd scenes. Like how did you guys like try to shoot all the crowd stuff at the same time? Or how did you get? I mean, they, it looks like there's a ton of people at the shows. Mad yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I actually learned a really great lesson on the show where I realized the sweet spot for any big crowd is like 60 people. 60 people is enough to fill out a space. I guess on like the exchange days, we got a little bit bigger. But yeah, not... we probably 150, 200 those days, I think. But those days were like really, it just slows everything down, right? Like we were cranking on terms of like the number of pages we were doing. Like there were a couple of days where I remember we shot 12 pages before lunch. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh my God, this is insane. It messed me up for subsequent shoots because I was like, yeah. 35 pages in a day i can do that <laughs> Done plenty of time. but so uh my point is though is that like as soon as you get past 60 you're hurting cats and like the number of pas that you have to like wrangle and your second seconds and all you know your whole team kind of it just becomes about the, the crowd size and are you yeah. feeding these 200 people and mm-hmm. stuff yeah 
Yeah. What do you feed 200 people? Tacos? I don't know, man. Really? <laughs> Kevin, what do we feed them? Do you remember? <laughs> I do not. Yeah. It was healthy, though. <laughs> yeah, we, we lucked. Our catering was great. Catering was good. Really loved catering. We all were talking good. before we yeah. recorded about how much weight we gained. Getting the amazing <laughs> breakfast burritos. I, th- I think the other thing in getting those scenes to look good was just really precise editing. And, um, you know, it, I guess it's a combination between, say, close-ups, which were fine, and then shots of our actual like large crowds on the day and stock footage. And mm-hmm. it was really pulling together those three different elements in a way that you, you, you kind of couldn't tell. Oh, is there stock footage from like bigger shows? It, there's used? stock footage certainly for like all of the uh, festival exteriors or there's a ton of stock there. Um, there's not much in the first episode though. I think we there? just use one or two shots. Yeah. And also you just have to be very careful with the shots you use because with those crowds of 60, you can make it look like a crowd of 6,000. Sure. However, one, at least if you know what to look for, one shot, like the corner of one shot, if you're not careful how you edit, you can suddenly realize the crowd ends there. Mm-hmm. And I was frequently in the edit just picking out, going like sure. that shot needs to be tighter. Or like a, zooming in or yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think also just people when they're when it's sixty people and it needs to look like six thousand, you gotta just push them together. Like that's the thing that's really hard is because people naturally just want to have a little bit of space. And like I remember like having PAs like literally like constrict the space that they were allowed to stand in because like at a show like that you don't have you're like rubbing up against everybody. So right. I think you can make five people look like a huge party if you really get them like scrunched up with each other and the good the good thing is on the the day where we did the clubs for episode one which was obviously really important they were actual fans i kind of reached out on facebook and the good thing about them was they knew how to rave so yeah. immediately they looked very very realistic because they knew what to do in that environment whereas on some of the other days where we'd kind of have extras that weren't really experienced in what to do in a nightclub and i don't know that they'd, they'd be pumping their fists in kind of like a sort of stagey way mm-hmm. which to most people would look all right but then i want people from my world to see the show and right. think it looks authentic and um every, everybody was like oh wow these extras are really good and i was like yeah they're not extras they're actual fans <laughs> and are you performing for real yeah real real performances yeah yeah especially on the days where you've got a lot of people like why not right yeah, it, it was it was pretty fun. And you're trying to get them riled up. Like, are you at? Do you ever you Gareth ever stop and say like, "Hey guys, we need bigger." Like, like, come on, crowd, get uh, excited. I mean, like, the na- the nature of this act was kind of a put your fucking hands up. Like, mm-hmm. it, you know, you do talk to the crowd a lot, so um, it, it's pretty easy to get the crowd going when you see the NC five. Right. Harder if you Gareth Emery. But <laughs> I think also we learned there was a clear line in terms of what I would tell a crowd to do, what you would tell a crowd to do and what our AD Elian would tell a crowd to do. So like, you know, you had to be pure hype man. You know, you're their best friend. They're there to help you out. Like you're, you're good times Gareth. And I would be more technical. I think a little bit, um, just like, don't move like, too much to your left. Or, like yeah, or, like, I need you to squish together. Like, everybody, like, right. get friends with your neighbor. Uh, and Ellie and Tubus Crowd actually is really, really great with the crowd work as well, but would also handle the other aspect of the logistics of, you know, moving people here or there or kind of communicating what was up next, keeping them in the loop and keeping them informed. Because especially when it was your fans, when they weren't being paid to be there, you, you have to give them an extra level of like respect and understanding 
and yeah. courtesy because like the last thing you want is for a fan to be bummed out about being a part of the show and we we had that talk and um i and elian's pretty nice anyway even when he's cracking the whip he'll do it in a nice way but on that morning i sort of put him to one side and said just fyi these guys are fans so you know dial down how you would talk to normal extras who are there getting paid or whatever they're these guys are here unpaid and i want them to go home happy right yeah i i mean we've talked about this on the show a million times but i like hate it when the ad's call them extras i don't even really like background that much i like i always try to call them like concert goers let's get our concert goers going let's get our fans going party yeah like, just try to make them feel like they have a role in this film, that they're not, like, a prop, you know? And I'm sure, like, 95% of our listeners know this, but, like, when you have back extras, you know, there's nothing better than, like, a good AD because if it's yeah, a SAG sure. production, the director doesn't even, isn't even really supposed to talk to the extras. Yeah, I didn't. Unless never, it's as a group. Uh, right, yeah. So you can do what, uh, like, an Omni, basically, um, but you can't specifically call people out. It was... A tricky thing for me because um, you want to direct, you want to be able to be specific and to you know have a relationship with these people, but also like the more I direct them, the the more that would be taking advantage of them, even if they were okay with that. So being mindful of that and making sure that um, everyone's being treated fairly, and then also like we had a good um, budget for upgrades. I would be like, hey guys, how many upgrades do I have today? So that when we had a great bit someone could do something funny and specific in the moment and then that would make it into the show we had some really good upgrades as well yeah my favorite being the guy in the uh, sushi restaurant i think oh <laughs> yeah uh the line was like you should was, be ashamed of yourself. you should be ashamed of yourself <laughs> so this is actually, i don't know if you know this story here uh so we got everybody together um and there was a slight m- miscommunication where it was like all right i'm gonna go upgrade somebody i'm gonna give an extra line and I got all of the people there for the day. The line is, you should be ashamed of yourselves, but unfortunately, it's a, a role for a female. And so, um, guys, you can go ahead and, you know, go hang out somewhere. And he, as he walked away, was like, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> and I literally was like, well, that's got to be it. That's I mean, the guy. So he, he, he won it fair and square. So I remember he, t- he told yeah. me that he had to hustle for a bit. And I was like, mate, I love that. Like, yeah, yeah. you know. Right. And so for our listeners that maybe haven't done a lot of SAG productions before basically if you have an extra that's getting paid pretty much minimum wage right mm-hmm. About. Like, so if you have them even if they're just like uh, affect the plot in any way like a, someone looks at, at a girl looks at a guy and whistles at him and we see a shot of that guy he's now like a principal yeah. and so you need to upgrade them and pay them more and they get residuals right mm-hmm so that's what maybe, upgrading it, is. Maybe not with the new media contract, but maybe. I don't know. Mm. I, don't, I decided not to learn all of that stuff because it would be And so it's all stressful. changing constantly. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, it it is, grows. yeah. but it is good to know if you're doing like your first SAG job and you start using like the extras to do all these funny bits and then realizing like, oh, crap, we can't do any of this. I did yeah, this. Yeah. You're spending a couple hundred Your producer dollars. comes running over. <laughs> He's Stop! Like, what yeah, I did this job where it was like two actors this one guy auditioning for this uh for not for a role and then the girl that was auditioning him right those were like the two characters and we had the editor like ADR'd some line that that was like in a video that the girl was watching on a tablet he said like hey man that's mine or something he was our editor 
said that. So and he then just dropped it in. He just dropped it in, yeah. and we ended up just keeping it. And then somebody handed her the lap, the tablet that she looked at, and you just saw his hands. Um, but it was SAG. The guy was, and it was a, a celebrity. And uh, SAG saw the video, and they're like, "These two people have to be in SAG." And they both got Taft Harleyed. <laughs> so editor. our editor is now in SAG, <laughs> and so is that PA who put his hands in the frame. <laughs> so it's wow. just like, yeah, sometimes you just have to be. It helps to be aware of those things because otherwise right. you'll just keep getting pissed off at your AD for not letting you do anything. Yeah. But there's like a reason. My first SAG gig, I accidentally upgraded somebody and it was a commercial. So she made like an extra four or 500 bucks. And she sent me a mug. That was oh, a thank nice. you. Um, just one last question about the writing. Like when you got this job and you found out eight 22 minute episodes. Yeah. This is more of just like a selfish question. A selfish question because I'm just curious how people the various strategies people have for this, but how did you figure out the arc of the show? Like where the characters start and where they end and what the format of the episodes was. So that was one thing that the writers from the production company uh, did well. Um, So the production company acres who produced the show um, were based out in New York. They had very little to do with the actual, um, you know, shooting of the show. Um, Kevin um, basically did all of that, but, the thing that Acres did well, maybe even the one thing that Acres did well, was telling us how to structure a show in terms of the arc. So we rented a house um, way up in the isolated Hollywood Hills where nobody could get hold of us. Cell service was terrible. And we just did it traditional style whiteboards and sat there and kicked around ideas. And it was really, really fun um, just saying like stupid things. And, you know, we kind of figured out that our first four episodes would be introducing the characters but they'd all be somewhat self-contained and then um episodes five through eight would be where the arc of the show really really took over and you know that's definitely one thing if i'd not had you know the 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 sort of template of how to do it um i would have been lost and um gez also knew that stuff already and he is an incredible mind when it comes to structure so when we came to putting these episodes down even though I did a lot of the writing. The structure was almost always Gez. And one thing that I find really difficult is just the interplay, you know, to have your, your A, B, C plots going um, and knowing where to go from you know, your A plot scene to your B plot scene. Like I like writing long scenes to express whatever, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get out in the scene. I'm not that good at then dividing up those long scenes to make a nice coherent show. Whereas you know, Gez tends to write stuff as if it's already edited. There's literally no editing done with his stuff. So he was really amazing at that. And so did you know how the show was going to end? Like when you first started, when you were pitching it? No, no, there was a lot of discussion about that. Although what I knew from the the very beginning was that when we initially sold the show, our music video was about the rise of the group. And pretty much everybody else said, this is going to be amazing. We're going to start the show at the bottom and then we're going to show the group get big. And I was like, no, there's no comedy in that. We're going to start at the top and we're going to show the wheels come off because that is what is going to be fun. And that is also where we get to um, identify and empathize with the characters because I find it difficult when you just see something going well all the time. It's really difficult for you to get empathy for these for these people. So for me, our five-minute music video, that was the entire journey of these guys getting big. And the show starts, and they're the absolute biggest. And slowly but surely, the wheels come off. 
And that for me was a, a much more interesting way of doing it. So it's essentially it's kind of uh, everything in, in their lives is going down, down, I guess, the sure. in, pretty much for eight episodes um, in, in, until the end. I would joke that basically this was a show about two characters who consistently made the wrong decision at every opportunity. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I guess the next most interesting question for me is how do you end up hiring Matt Enloe to direct the show? Yeah, this is a funny one. And I, I don't know if I ever <laughs> talked to Matt about this, about oh. how unlikely it was that we ended up working together. Sure. I mean, I remember not thinking I got the job. <laughs> no, so I, I think uh, I... Sorry, I hope uh, I didn't bring up... Uh, no, no. No, it's uh, an awesome story. No, but it, it is kind of a cool story. So we were meeting directors in LA and, and, and Kev was with me. And I think we met... So you had Kevin, uh, Akers so brought Kevin Akers on. brought Kevin on. So he was on at that point. So me, Kevin, Alicia, and I think somebody from Akers um, met about eight directors. And how do you um, find these directors? Um, it was just all people recommended that Kevin or Alicia knew. Um, I knew nobody in the world. So I was very much, um, you know, governed by the people they were bringing in who were the right sort of budget and the, and the, the right kind of style and did um, you look at all sorry to keep it wrong but did you look at all at like other stuff that you liked or digital shows you liked or series you liked and try to like meet those directors or? yeah i i gave ideas but nobody listened to any of them because <laughs> i was i was the you know i was kind of the person that found like, what about vince gilligan yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i read the scripts breaking bad we yeah. sourced who we thought would be right for the tone of the show and who would um be able to work with gareth and get gareth's vision across right so, um, the best of our ability from knowing you from that short amount of time. Yeah. So, so, so I'd meet people and, um, it was hard for me to know on a technical level what to ask, right? It's the unknown unknowns. Like I can kind of go, yeah, I like their previous work. They seem cool. We get on well. Are they right for the show? Not necessarily. Now, now having done the show, I'd know all the right questions to ask. Sure. And doing, yeah. What and, are the, I guess. Oh yeah, that's a great I, question. I'd love to know the right questions. And also I'm curious, did you watch people's reels or how did you watch their previous I'd, I'd watch their reels, yeah. But then the reels were often really, really different to what we were doing. Mm-hmm. The, the, generally, we're shooting the show in, in the US and we're trying to make a fairly dry British comedy. So <laughs> generally speaking, nobody had really done anything that was remotely close to what we were doing. Yeah, um, So myself included. <laughs> kind <laughs> so, of, right? Yeah. Like, like I didn't have any British material except for some kitten commercials right so it, <laughs> it and, and also it's it was hard for me to judge again not knowing that much the quality of directing versus the quality of script when i was looking at somebody's reels you know i may have just not liked the script or, or the acting hard to know um what part the director played so so we met sort of eight different directors and i was kind of going on gut instinct at that point now doing it again I'd be really keen to know what somebody would want to change. What are the issues? Like, mm-hmm. where do you see the problems being? Um, In the scripts. Yeah. What, what, what don't you like? And if those were the same things that I didn't like, cool. That's mm-hmm. probably a good sign. Whereas if those are things that are kind of very close to my heart about what the show's about, right. well, then we're going to have issues. So we had um, talked to all these directors. I really had no idea who I was going to choose. You know, there's some, and Matt was out of town. So Matt wasn't one of those people. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Everyone else had an in-person meeting and I was at like a film festival. You were at a film, fe- film festival. Did that make um, you seem, did that make Matt seem like a little cooler? To, um, no, no, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it, it was just, no, yeah. I was enjoying meeting people face to face, but right. basically it was the end of the day. 
I'd met all these people. Some were definite no's. Others I had slightly better vibes on, but I really like not made a decision. And it was five o'clock and I was exhausted. I wanted to go home, watch some television and, sure. and go to bed. And somebody was like, oh, you've got, you've got the last director of the day, Matt Enlow. And I was like, oh, do I really want to talk to another director sure. at, at this point? Um, but I was like, it's kind of rude, like not to do the call. So, 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 I literally left a party to take this call. I was like in a rental car. <laughs> so, so, this was like, si- so this was similar on both sides. Yeah, yeah, I was like, oh, well, all right, we'll see what happens. <laughs> so, so, so I left to take the call. And what I did was I, I left my office and I called an Uber to take me home. And I was like, right, I'll leave the office, jump in the Uber um, and do the call on the way home. The Uber never showed up and I'd locked myself out of the office. So essentially, I had to do our call in an alleyway with cars like blasting past. I could barely hear what Matt was saying. So like when I started that call, I was going, I was thinking in my head, there's no possible way this is going to work out. I can't even hear the bloody guy. But you know what? I'm going to be polite. But there was something in that call. and I don't know what it was that made me go, I want to meet this guy. And it again, I could barely hear, sure. so I can't remember what it was, but something in that like 10 or 15 minute call, I was like, we need to meet this guy. And I even said to the crew before that, like, yeah, we'll probably go with one of these guys. Let me make up my mind. And then after that call, I was like, let's wait till Matt gets back and let's meet him. Yeah. And then you came over to my studio. We had one meeting and it was just very clear from that point, like you were the guy. Nobody else, after that meeting, nobody else was in contention. I, you know, I always joke that I think that the secret to that those first two meetings was uh, having read all the scripts. It felt like no one else maybe had, like based off your reactions, having thoughts about the whole series, which was, you know, long. It's like, yeah, it's eight episodes, right? So, um, but I did make the time to do that. And I think that was kind of, that and being excited, you know, I think we had some cool ideas about um, some drug trip sequences, even though it was a mockumentary. Yes. But you, but you weren't like, yeah, bro, I can do it, which a lot of people had been. And mm-hmm. that was one thing. If a director was like, yeah, I've, I've read it. It's great. I can do it. Awesome. But they'd not done anything of that length. Mm-hmm. I'd start to think, well, yeah, are they going to have the, you know, the eye for detail? And the fact that you'd gone through it and you'd already seen little things that may have been problems. Mm-hmm. And I agree what those things were. Like, you know, I'm a detailed oriented person. Sure. So when I see somebody else that works on that level, um, you know, that, that's a good thing for me. But how do you bring those up, Matt? Are you like, I didn't really like this part. Or are you like, I love this part. But you know what would, could be a little well, better is this doesn't yeah, you kind make of more to, sense. You if, test the waters a little bit and you try and figure out what they do love the most. And honestly, it was something where, you know, with any show, you're trying to figure out like, oh, can we make this thing together or not? So if you were like, ah, I really, really love this thing that I didn't connect with, then we shouldn't make the show. You know what I mean? Like, of course, I always want the job because I'm like competitive in that way. But also, if it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be. So, like, I think being honest and constructive in terms of like how you would plus the things that you wanted to plus, I think, is the way to do it. Um, but then also, I had like a couple calls with like suits on the other side. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of a different. I think a lot of the questions that maybe you didn't ask of like, well, can you really fucking do this? Right. Yeah. I exactly, think, exactly. I think like complex definitely was like, let's make sure this 
like budget wise and scope wise and yeah scope wise because it you know it was a cross-boarded show right so like doing eight episodes cross-boarded is hard it's a lot to handle in terms of just knowing how to orient yourself in a story and Keeping you know, track of stuff keeping so that it actually of, cuts. Yeah, and making sure, like, I'm the, the compass for the actors to know where they are emotionally, scene by scene. And, like, literally, we would shoot stuff that was, like, at the very beginning of the season and the very end in the same day within right, five exactly. minutes of each other. You know, so so being able to have a handle on that in addition to be able to do the style and all the other stuff is like a, a tall order, I think. Complex also did have their preference even before sure. we started looking for directors and, and I kind of had to push against that. And, and Their preference of director? Yeah, they, they had somebody who was close to one of the one of the EPs on the show um, who, who they were really keen for and we listened and, 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 and but there's nothing wrong with this guy. He's a good director sure. and has done some really, really big stuff but just... Um, I t- when I can't go on knowledge, I tend to go on gut feeling, and gut feeling, even when you do have knowledge, is often the best the best way to go. And you know, my gut feeling was was just with Matt, so that was kind of yeah. who I who I pushed for. Um, that's got a power, yeah. you know. The, the I am guys, pretty good in a room. That's true. The other guy's interview was on pretty good. I, you know, we felt good about it, but then Matt came in afterwards for that second interview and really blew us all away. Exactly, and I think it was just such great choice and I, I think I, I'm a difficult person to work with on a creative level because I have very strong opinions about how things should be and I'm used to being the only person that gets to call the shots in the world of music mm-hmm. every single decision ends with me there's n- and you literally own the studio it's in your garage right <laughs> exactly oh, very nice and <laughs> thank you and when i'm releasing music you know ultimately the record label will have their say but ultimately yeah it's going to come down to me and it, it was tough for me to suddenly have other voices um saying how this thing that had started in my head should be and i was kind of amazed that we really had remarkably little disagreements yeah. with anything and I, I remember going into it i recognized I have the potential to be a pain in the ass. And I kind of thought quite early on, like on set, Matt is running this and sure. whatever opinions I have, I'm going to keep them to myself. And when, and because I was sure there was going to be things I really wouldn't like. And I kind of yeah. thought to myself, right, when there's something I really don't like, I'll have that conversation offset. Cause I imagine the worst type of thing that can happen on these sets with something of a creative megalomaniac like me is where, during a shoot, somebody starts going, well, I think it should be done that way. And right. all of a sudden you're having these conversations like in front of the rest of the crew. So I'd already kind of like mentally tell myself, keep your mouth shut during the set. But those moments never really came. I think we're just pretty much on the same yeah, same I'm, path I wanted it to be. Yeah, no, I, we were really fortunate in that way. And I think that um, started, part of that is like setting the ground rules of like when it when it's time to make sure that everyone's on the same page and that we all like the direction that we're headed in um, before you're rolling. But we didn't have a ton of prep. So like we were in a a sprint, you know, it was like there were plenty of things where if you had a problem with it, it would have been rough because that was the one location that we had. And (laughs) well, are we going to shoot today or not? Um, so we lucked out. It seems like there's kind of two types of directing yeah. for higher jobs that you can get. There's one where someone's looking for someone to take the help, you know, to helm this thing and figure out how the hell it's going to get done and how, what it's going to feel like and what it's going to like. The tone is going to be 
um, and kind of be an auteur in a way. And then the other job is like kind of shepherding a joint vision and like collaborating and like, you know, being someone that everyone can trust to yeah. pull this off the way that, that everyone is kind of in agreement of how it is. And I think certain people are not so good at that second version, you know? It was really nice after my first day on set, just seeing the way the set was running. And I, I just remember, whatever, despite whatever else was, was going on off set for me, it was a little bit of a stressful time, but just thinking this is in safe hands with Matt and his crew was a massive weight off my shoulders. And I didn't imagine I would miss a single scene, you know, having been so involved in the writing. But if I wasn't due to be on set, 50% of the time I wouldn't I wouldn't turn up just because, and that wasn't out of laziness. I was just very, very tired. And I knew that, you know, the show was in good hands. Yeah, that's awesome. That's like a big compliment to Matt, which I've never heard before on this show. <laughs> just kidding. Oh, um, you guys are making me blush. But uh, uh, one last question, just because I think uh, we've hit upon this topic that's really uh interesting to me and i'm sure our listeners but can you guys you uh gareth and kevin each name three mistakes that like directors you guys met with made that kind of turned you off from them you you already mentioned gareth like the ones that had like no real opinion or weren't very detail-oriented like yeah don't worry i got this yeah definitely a lack of specific knowledge about what we were trying to do i think was 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 a big turn off and i think in general like you know if you're trying to do something which is in essence very technical like <laughs> you should be able to describe the technical side of, of of what you're doing um i'm trying to think what else was what else was a big yeah i think a strong pov is really really important because that's it's like when an actor comes to a role they're bringing their own take on that and every director is bringing their own take on the story that's being told and um even if you have a really strong opinion on something to not be scared if it's wrong, because if it's, there's no wrong, right. in creativity, but if it's not something that jives well with the people that are creating the show, being open to be able to have that conversation. Uh, and I think that collaboration was a huge thing for this show, regardless of the speed and regardless of all the, the egos involved, everybody was there to make something really great. And you as the director are bringing your greatness to the table and the collective greatness is why the show is going to be awesome and Matt brought his side of things. I'm sure there was things that we all disagreed upon within that first and second meeting, but because Matt was open to taking those different ideas and we were open to taking those different ideas, there was like a two-way communication that formed immediately, I felt. I think one thing as well, I love the fact that most of the directors we met were pretty honest about what they would change. And there was one uh, set of directors I met who were really good directors and they had a great track record and they told me all the things they didn't like about the show and they were very, very honest, which happened to be all things I really liked about the show. <laughs> and we both went away and obviously they were not going to be directing it. Um, they didn't book the job, but if they had, it would have been really shitty for them and it would have been really shitty for me and we all would have regretted it. So the fact they were so honest, you know, led them not booking a show that was not to be. And right. I think that... Um, that's also key it's not just about booking the job it's about booking the right jobs because the wrong one is is these things are so difficult and so long you know from the moment you do it to it being out you know probably nearly a year and a half in this case so it's a large chunk of your life a year ago like a year year and a week ago yeah 
I'm seeing like all of the Facebook memories coming up. Like it's crazy, feed, crazy. Right? Probably when we were in the 70s of our episodes. Yeah. We're now this is episode 120. Yeah. Wow. Congrats. Yeah. Um, that's crazy. Well, on that note, I think we should probably wrap things up with every interview we do. There's like so many things to ask, like about the next season and about why you know how you felt about all these shots Matt had with all this extra headroom in them and stuff. Um, <laughs> I love that shit. That, I love it too, but it's the type of my... thing that I would do and then someone would be like, that looks like a lot of headroom. And I'd be like, okay, fine. Well, let's Did, just... Yeah, so, so in the, so in the show, uh, one thing that Andy, our DP, and I really talked about was trying to find a way to add little injections of style. And there was a show that you really love, Gareth, called uh, People Just Do Nothing. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And they did like a cool kind of like lock off interview thing. And we were like, oh, that's cool. What if we really plus that? And so we would do compositions where the interviews, sometimes they would, I wanted them all to be wonders that didn't end up happening, but we would have like half the screen was headroom. Like to the point where like I needed to make sure that I told the editors like, hey, these are avant-garde weird shots. Don't keep them. with them. Yeah. yeah. And some of them, and they look so nice, those shots. They look great, and right? Yeah. I think having those fairly glossy shots was yeah. just the perfect antidote to a show where, you know, the camera work was pretty rough and ready because sure. it's a mockumentary. Right. And did I show you those shots? Did I? Did we talk about that or did I just do it? I'm trying to remember. How aware of the shot composition were you on, I on that I think we talked about it. I think... It, uh, in pre-production, I probably didn't care that much sure. about it. I, I was just like, hey, if he thinks it's good, it's yeah. a good idea. And then when we get on set, and often I'd walk around um, to the video village and be like, oh, wow, that that's awesome. Yeah. So, um, yeah. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, Andy and I shot something where we did a similar thing, a ton of headroom and room for titles and all this mm-hmm. awesome stuff. And then the freaking editors like yeah. reframed it all. <laughs> yeah. yeah, in the pilot and the first cut, I remember them seeing them repo things. And I was like, no, no, no more right. headroom because it's like the type of thing the first time you see it, you're like whoa that's a lot of headroom and then second time you're like oh this is like it's consistent then it's, it's like, like a, a choice yeah yeah motif yeah um well awesome well so should we jump into our final segment final the segment show? unpaid endorsements unpaid endorsements number one like when you're looking at that swiffer wet jet in at target or wherever and thinking like does this thing actually work yeah, it works. I'm a big <laughs> proponent of the Swiffer wet jet. It, first, you got a Swiffer with the non-wet jet. Then the wet jet is pretty awesome. So you're talking about a two Swiffer head cleanup job? Yeah, it's not like a miracle thing, but like, you know, Having if you've got a hard, kitchen floor or a bathroom or whatever, and it's got like footprints on it, like the Swiffer is not going to take care of that. Is there a large premium for the wet jet version? I think it's like 35 bucks or something for the initial mm-hmm. buy, and then you can buy refills. and Sure. Buy. Razor blades, as they say. Yeah. My second one, just is something I thought of while we were talking, when we were talking about the crowd scenes, is there's this like the weird guy that made this set of like uh, directing videos like years ago called the Hollywood Camera Work Series. Have you ever heard of it? Mm-mm. He's this guy. I think he's like so unsure of the way he speaks. He had like, he hired a weird announcer type person to narrate all the videos and that person like clearly doesn't even know anything about film the way they talk but he all he does is he talks about composition and framing and one of the things that he talks about which has always stuck with me is how whenever you frame a shot it should never 
you should always feel like the world extends beyond the edges of your frame. So if you do a crowd, even if you have three people and you're trying to set up a crowd, don't put all three of those people fully in frame. Like right. cut off their shoulders. Like have someone walking in and out. Like zoom it. Like, you, you know, like to make something believable, like a crowd, whether it's 60 people or six people, like you might have the instinct at first, like I only have six people, I need to make it look like a crowd to put them all on camera at once. Um, but that's like the fakest looking thing, you know? Yeah. And it's like, uh, so check it out. I think it's called Hollywood Camera Work. Body uh, wipes. That's the main thing. Body wipes and backs. Oh, sorry. I thought um, you were talking about those things you wipe your butt with. Oh, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> I was back on the Swiffer. No, no. I mean, having someone cross Crossing, the camera. Yeah. That's, that's like crucial in terms of selling a scene like that. Yeah. Are you the one, were we talking about why don't they make like a green screen body yeah. wipe library? I don't know why they don't. Like yeah. it, it drives me insane. Like just a backlit one, a frontlit one, like kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah right? Just mix and match. Like, like you need to add some wipes, you know, to make it seem more crowded. <clears throat> There's a college kid out there who like wants to make a couple thousand bucks on over a summer and that's the way to do it. Yeah. Get, Why don't we get do on it? Let's do it. Maybe. Yeah. I'll wipe a lens a few times. There you, you go. You know what I mean? Hey, yo. Uh, Kevin, you got anything, bud? Um, Kodiak cakes. What is a Kodiak cake? Costco Kodiak cakes. It's a pancake mix. It's a protein protein pancakes. Oh, and uh, like a healthy it's pancake, an ice cream sandwich. It's not. No, it's what just they called Kodiak power Klondike? cakes. You're thinking of an it's it? Maybe a Klondike bar. Klondike Klond- bar. Yeah, Klondike. but it's uh, it's pretty dang good. High in protein. You could use water instead of uh, you know vanilla milk or whatever, and it still tastes great. Huh. And I would say check that out. I will check that yeah. out. Yeah. I'm always looking for like a fast, solid breakfast. Option. Super fast breakfast. And we thought we bought this thing from Costco and my wife and I are like, we're never going to finish this. It's huge. And we just like every other day we were eating Kodiak cakes. It's pretty ridiculous. Um, sorry to go back to my recommendation real quick. <laughs> but uh, what's the most endorsed thing on our podcast ever? Uh, I don't know. In the blink of an eye? No, Shot Designer. The app. Oh, sure. I think it's been endorsed like three times. Uh, this person that makes the Hollywood camera work guide is the person that makes that app. I just looked them up. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, man. They emailed me after uh, we endorsed it a couple, and I sent them a blurb. Oh, really? Yeah. You didn't tell me about that? Ah, uh, man. I'm such you a bad friend. You never <laughs> update me on <laughs> anything podcast related. Uh, I should do that. Um, Gareth, what you got? I'm going to do two things. Um, the first, just coming off what Kev just said, intermittent fasting not eating for 16 hours a day is actually remarkably amazing for your mental clarity and focus. And I've been doing it for the last six months or so. And I struggle with eating healthily, um, particularly because I travel a lot and, and, and work far too hard and in, eat when I'm stressed. In and, nightclubs. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And the amazing thing, which is really surprising, is firstly, there's a lot of great health benefits, um, ridiculous amount. And secondly... Eating nothing for 16 hours is actually much easier than trying to eat just a little bit of food. Interesting. Um, Wait, is the 16 hours include sleeping time, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so typically I'll do like, I'll eat between 10 and 6 and then nothing until 10 the next morning. And I've never felt deprived and it's pretty amazing and it's got me in pretty good shape. So that's the first one. And the second, this may have been on the show already, but it was incredible for me when we were writing um cbnt5 um brian koppelman the um creator one of the co-creators of billions 
um, used to have this amazing Vine account where he'd write little screenwriting tips. He did about 300 of them. And now, even though Vine doesn't exist, somebody's taken Brian Koppelman's screenwriting tips and put them all in one document you can download. And there's, it's 300 like short, sharp little tidbits of advice oh. on screenwriting. And whenever I was in a fix or wasn't feeling inspired, um, these were really, really useful. So, um, yeah. I don't think that anyone has endorsed no, that. I've never even heard of that. That is awesome. An and I'm looking it up right now. Textbook endorsement. Yeah. Killer, man. Print them out, have them by your desk. Really, really good stuff. Love it. Um, well, so my endorsement is on a music kick. Uh, I'm working on a short film right now, uh, and it's got a classical music score. And that's basically what I'm endorsing is the idea of using like classical music because in sound libraries and music libraries, a lot of the ready-made music that you can get is pretty bad nah, right? yeah um but you can't beat like a classic classic tchaikovsky score right and all of that stuff is on there as well because um all of that stuff is, it's so old that it's all fair use so it's just somebody doing a great job of recording it maybe through some fancy software or, or at an orchestra so you can get like some of the greatest songs of all time for $50 on premiumbeats.com. Yeah. So if you're doing a short film, uh, go ahead and think about a classical score. It's super fun. If it's good enough for Stanley Kubrick, it's good enough for me. Uh, or it's Kubrick, like, no, come on. <laughs> um, so yeah, well, thank you guys so much. Kevin, where can we? Where can listeners find out more about you? Uh, Themachine.la. Perfect. And that's across all social media? That's... Uh, the Machine LA, correct. Perfect. Gareth? Uh, just Gareth Emery, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. If you write Gareth into Google, I'm the second most famous Gareth. Ooh, who's the first? Gareth Bale. He's a footballer. He's the most famous footballer in the world at the moment. Mm. So, you know, I had the top spot for a good 10 years. He's got it now, but football is a short career. Sure. And, um, <laughs> it's a ticking clock, bro. <laughs> and music is long. So uh, when he retires, unless some other Gareth pops up, I'll have it again. But um, I'm usually number two. That's awesome. Yeah, I've just confirmed it on my Google. Gareth Bale, Gareth Emery, Gareth Edwards, who's someone we talk a lot about on this podcast. Is, also is, British, right? Right, yeah. There's also there's another Gareth Edwards who's a very famous rugby player in Britain oh. who probably doesn't even make the top 10 now, which makes me sad because he's one of my favorites. But yeah. What's funny is that Gareth Edwards is number four and number three is just Gareth with no last name. <laughs> right, yeah. I'm glad to have number two, though. If you'd told me, like, I was number three, I'd be pretty heartbroken going down <laughs> Just gene generic Gareth without even a surname. He was beating me and got number two. Oh, you know who Gareth number three is? He's a fictional character from the American television series The Walking Dead. Oh, there you oh, go. Oh, right. Well, see, if you search in the UK, Gareth from The Office is oh, such a legendary right. character. Sure. Yeah, I yeah. think he beat me for quite a long time. Mm. Oh, also Gareth is a knight of the round table, an Arthurian legend. Oh. Yeah, he's a hard one to deny his Google spot, isn't he? Yeah, he's sure. He's worked hard for it. Still <laughs> going strong after like thousands of years. Yeah. Game recognizes game. <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, thanks so much, guys. Uh, if you want to learn more about the show or the things that we talked about, uh, you can check us out at Just Shoot a Pod on all of the social medias. Uh, and you can follow me at Mr. Matt Enlo. And me at Smitty Pileg. We love to hear your feedback. Email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com. Check out our Patreon. Check out our iTunes page, which we would love a review on. That really helps people find it. This episode was edited by Jay McAuliffe. Our producer is Madeline Rosewatt. And our webmaster is Ewan Williams. The music is 
from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Thanks for listening. Bye.